Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. George Yancey. He's professor of sociology at the Baylor University. He has published several research articles on the topics of institutional racial diversity, racial identity, academic bias, progressive Christians, and anti-Christian hostility, and we're going to talk about those topics today. So, Dr. Yancey, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Okay, great. So, uh, first, one basic, I think, question. So, uh, would you say that, and because we're going to focus, of course, in, on the U.S., do you think that uh, American society is racialized? And if so, what would that mean? Yeah, I would say it's, it clearly is racialized. Uh, there, to me, there's no doubt about that. Um, probably more so than any other society than perhaps South Africa. Uh, and what I mean by that is that race matters in ways that uh, doesn't in other societies. The way we interpret race, the way that we uh, say, you know, I'm an African American and and what does that mean, and, and, and things of this nature. Uh, you know, there's more of a focus on that. Despite all the talk about how we're post-racial and stuff like that, there's more of a focus on that than in other societies. And that's what I mean by where we're racialized. The race matters in our life opportunities, our life chances, everything like that. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are some of the most uh, important domains of people's lives where their race as an impact? Yeah, you know, I, I think it impacts maybe the most important part is how we think about things. Uh, when I enter into situations, uh, I'm not saying it's the only thing that matters, but me being black matters on how I interpret what's happening before me. So, uh, you know, I'm not even saying that's the most important thing that matters, I'm just saying it matters. Whereas perhaps, uh, in other countries, it, it really wouldn't matter. It would, it would, it would, you know, other things would matter, but not that. Uh, and so the way we interpret things, you know, the way our politics plays out, I think clearly shows that we interpret our political realities in part due to our racial identity. Uh, this research shows that African Americans are less likely to see society as fair compared to European Americans. Uh, you know, and so so there's that before we even get into the possibilities of discrimination or prejudice or structural discrimination, just it just shapes our minds on how we see things. Mm -hmm. But black Americans are discriminated against in American society. The nature of the discrimination has changed, but it okay. still happens. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we're not living in Jim Crow or slavery or anything like that. And I think, I, you know, I think it's always important to, to have perspective. Uh, but there's research that shows that if uh, African-American calls in for a job and a white person calls, calls in for a job, the African-American is less likely to get the call back. All, you know, they've done these audit studies to show this is the case. This research shows that uh, blacks are more likely to be pulled over by the police, all other things being equal. Uh, you know, so, so yeah, th there is discrimination that does occur. Uh, it's more, uh, it's not as, uh, I want to say it's more subtle uh, it's more institutionalized, you know, institutions treat us differently, uh, you know, than, than it has been in the past, but it still impacts our life chances. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that there's some institutional racism, right? 
Right. The, and institutional racism is different from personal racism. Okay. Personal racism is someone treats you differently because of your race. Da, da, da. Institutional racism is the institution, regardless of how people in there feel. So it's not about you know personalized racism. It's about the institution. And we know that this is true, say, criminal justice system. We know that all of these being equal, if you're an African American and Hispanic American, you're more likely to be convicted, uh, have a heavy, heavy, heavier sentence, more likely to be charged, more likely to be arrested, all sorts of these different things. And it's not necessarily the individual, his or herself, is racist, as we have an institution that works against the, uh, the uh, people of color in this way. Mm -hmm. But are there, is there also... Um... Is there also systemic racism? Because I would guess that that's different from institutionalized racism or, or not. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I tend to think of the institutionals as the way systemic racism occurs. Mm -hmm. That uh, institutions allowed to be systematic, whereas an individual can, can, by definition, not be systematic. If a person, his or herself, is racist, they're racist to all those people around them. But the whole institution, criminal justice system, it could be systematically uh, discriminatory against, you know, almost all people who enter into it. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I think of the institutions as a way systematic racism occurs. Mm -hmm. So apart from discrimination and racism, uh, what are some of the causes behind racial disparities that we see in the U.S.? Because, I mean, if you ask people on the left or on the right, they have different answers to that question. Sure. So what is your take on it? I mean, it, that's a multifaceted question. Obviously, you know, I, I do believe institutional racism and some forms of personal racism play a role in it. I think our history, our history of racism plays a form in it look at residual segregation, you know, that didn't happen by accident. And then, you know, if you read Massey and Ditton, there's all sorts of pernicious effects due to residual segregation. I would say, you know, are there cultural factors that could play a role in it? Yes. You know, I'm not going to say it's just about racism. Then, you know, there could be certain cultural differences that could play a role in, in, in what happens in our society. Uh, black kids are told, black boys are told, your way out is professional sports. Uh, you know, the, the chances of, of, you know, you being LeBron James is not very high. Uh, but, you know, they get those signals. And I know from being in the black community, we didn't get the strong signals of do well educationally. So there, so there are there are cultural factors that play a role in this as well. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a very multifaceted uh, dynamic uh, that, that occurs that creates these sort of inequalities. Uh, I don't, you know, I would, uh, I mean, I, I think in theory, physical differences could matter, but I, I would downplay that very, very dramatically. I don't think the physical differences are great enough to really have a have an impact. There may be some, but I don't think that they're really that great, great enough. I, I think it's more cultural and then some of these racialized factors. Mm -hmm. So talking about the culture, do you agree when people on the right say that, for example, uh, two of the biggest problems in black communities are the fact that uh, there are more single parent families than uh, we find in other races, I think, and also mm -hmm. sometimes they mention lack of personal responsibility. So do you agree with that? Well, if you say there's the two biggest factors, I won't agree with that. 
if you say they are factors, I'm not going to deny that they are factors. You know, I'm not going to deny that. Now, let's just take the single parent family, for example. Mm -hmm. the, you know, all sorts of research shows that two parents are better than one parent. Uh, you know, for financial reasons, for, uh, you know, we know that it's the case for as far as kids, as far as delinquency, you know, education, all that sort of stuff. So the fact that African-Americans have or more than one uh, single parent as opposed to two parents has got to impact the life chances of the kids. But you have to go a step further than that. Uh, why is it they only have a single parent family? Now, I'm not going to just say it's racism, because you can look at something like Hispanic families, and they, they tend, you know, Mexican-American families tend to have a lot of two-parent families. So it's not just pure racism, but it play, plays a role. And so it's not just is it is it is there something internal in African-American culture that that leads to more higher likelihood of single parent families? I'm not opposed to that idea. But it also interacts, I believe, with our racialized society to to exacerbate it. So uh, so that's how I would I would see it. You know, it, it's it's I wish I could just tell you, here's the answer A and, and that's it. But that's not the way society works. You know, society rarely, rarely is there just one explanation for what's happening. And so, you know, you have to look at it that way. Right. And since we find these racial disparities, at least in the U.S., uh, because blacks uh, usually show uh, uh, poor results in several different social metrics, can we say that whites are privileged in some way? Yeah. Uh yeah, there's 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 white privilege, which you know there's there. I think there's a there's a good body of data showing that there is some degree of privilege out there. Uh, there, there are other things that people assert that I I look for the body of data is just not there. But white privilege, I think, is is fairly solid. But even if there wasn't white privilege, I, I think there's just a comparative advantage that you get if one group does not perform as well. And so, uh, I I you know I don't know how well you know about American baseball. Uh, or Jackie Robinson. Uh, Jackie Robinson was the first African American to play baseball. Before that, before he started playing baseball, if you're a white baseball player, you had the only people you had to beat out was other whites in order to make the team. You know, I'm not saying it was easy, but that's all you had to beat out. After Jackie Robinson comes in and other blacks come in, now you must compete against the other white and now African American baseball players. It makes it harder for you to succeed. Doesn't mean you can't succeed. Obviously, you said how great white baseball players after Jackie Robinson, but it was harder to succeed. I think if you think about it, that makes sense when you look at other dynamics of our society. The African Americans have a harder time becoming CEOs, and you're a, a European American, regardless of whether or not you are a person who races yourself, you have it a little bit easier because all you have to compete against is other white CEOs or CEO candidates. You don't have to compete against people of color as candidates because they have it harder, or very few people of color candidates because they have it harder. So there's a comparative advantage uh, in our society to being white, regardless of anything else. Uh, and, you know, as long as we have these inequities, that's what we'll have. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, sometimes people talk about white guilt, but is this a real phenomenon, white guilt? Uh, as far as do some whites feel guilty? Yeah, that, feel guilty from uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. things that happened yeah, in mean, the past. I've I, I, I met with some of them. Yeah, some some whites do do. Yeah, that's a real phenomenon. I don't think it's been studied very much because I don't think 
a lot of academics are interested in studying that, but that would be an interesting phenomenon to study. There's been some research, I'll take that back, there's been some research on white anti-racists. I think they touch on it, but they don't really go in depth on it. So I think you could find some work, more qualitative work, when we look at some of those literature on white anti-racists. Mm-hmm. And is white supremacy something that people should worry about in American society? I think it depends on how you define it. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't worry about the KKK anymore, you know, personally. I mean, is it possible that I'll be singled out by some craze? Yeah, but it's also possible I'll be singled out by craze anybody, you know, uh, a, a craze Muslim, you know, I mean, that's possible. I'm, I don't go around worrying about radical Muslims, but I'm not gonna say it's not possible, or, or a crazy African, another African American who just, you know, whatever. Uh, I, but if you define white supremacy more broadly, as far as, you know, getting away from the whole uh, violence, that sort of thing, but you define it more broadly as far as, you know, systems in our society that benefit European Americans, that's more problematic. And that's why when I, when I teach those, race and ethnicity I really don't focus a lot on on uh, white supremacists or or uh, or clans or, or violent terrorists or anything I really because I don't think that that's the big problem in our society today they they're out there they exist but you can find you know you can find crazy groups of people anywhere uh, and we don't worry about most of them because usually they don't do very much uh, but I think the systematic problems is what we need to focus in on. And that's what I focus in on when I teach race ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So in your work, you talk about uh, transcending racial barriers. But first, mm-hmm. could you tell us what these racial barriers are? Yeah, you know, the way I've, I've come to think about it is, uh, you know, we've had in, in our country uh, centuries of racial abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, very overt racial abuse, not just blacks with slavery, but Native Americans on reservations, the way Hispanic Americans were forced to do uh, dirty, dirty labor, uh, mistreatment of Asian Americans. So we had centuries of that. All right. So that has created dynamics in our society, which impact all of us. How do we overcome that in a fair manner in our society? I think that's that's the big question. Is it? You know, some people would argue that, well, what we have to do is just comp- just contract compensating people of color. And I, and I get that. And there's, that's true up to a point. But can you get to where you overcompensate? I mean, to, to put it brutally, we've had 400 years of slavery. Is it a fair thing to make whites slaves for 400 years and now, now everything's equal? I don't think we want that. I mean, that, that's an exaggeration to show that, yes, you can overcompensate. How do you do? How do you deal with that? I think that's the real barrier that we have that we're struggling with in our society, because there's really very few people who are overt uh, supremacists today. So it's not the same problem we had in the 1950s or 60s, where people did not think much of people of color. They didn't think that we were fully human. I don't think that that's the big problem today. The big problem is how do we overcome our centuries of racial abuse to create a fair society for today? And I think we're struggling with that. I think that that's the source of a lot of our racial conflict, even though people don't articulate it in that way. Mm-hmm. So, and what would be some of the best strategies to transcend those racial barriers? Well, I've been an advocate of having more collaborative conversations mm-hmm. in order to solve problems, not just talk for the sake of talking, but to solve problems. And 
and to try to find win-win situations, win-win solutions, to take into consideration everyone's interests and then figure it out. And I think there's research out there that shows in other settings that that works. And so I've been, I've been advocating that we need to bring this into the racial setting. And we got, we got to figure out a way to stop talking past each other and talk to each other. Uh, and so that's, that's, I think that that's the best solution the way forward that I see. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm not going to pretend that it's an easy, it's an easy uh, problem to solve because it's not. And it's not just because it's a hard problem intellectually, but it's a hard problem emotionally to solve. And uh, sometimes that makes it, uh, that, that makes it all the more difficult to solve our problems. In that case, can exposing people to a diverse social context help in any way? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think in order, in fact, I think in order to have these conversations, we have to first be exposed to people of other groups under the right conditions, uh, you know, under the conditions that contact hypothesis says is very helpful so that people are relatively you know, equal with each other, uh, that... Uh, the support from relevant authority figures, uh, working towards a larger goal, uh, those sort of things. So yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of contact. I, you know, I've, you've, you've seen my book, so you know I've written a couple of books on interracial contact, and, and uh, I think that, that that is part of, of the solution. It's not the entire solution, but I think it's part of the solution, yes. Mm -hmm. And do you think that other solutions like reparations that people should implement them and they would help in some way? You know, <clears throat> reparations is an interesting problem. What I would say is if at the end of, of, of having these conversations we decide on reparations, that's fine. I would oppose imposing reparations without, <clears throat> excuse me, without developing the background to where we, we can uh, uh, discuss this. And, and people can be more on board with it. And the reason why is if you want to think about it this way, let's say that uh, President Biden has this Blue Ribbon Commission and they impose these reparations. So they give all African-Americans, let's say, I've heard, I've seen figures like $40,000, $60,000. Let's say $50,000, which makes my life a little bit easier, so I'm, I'm not complaining. Uh, all right, so, so that money goes out. What happens the very next day? very next day, all people who are not African-Americans say, okay, you all got your money, now just shut up. I don't want to hear your complaints anymore. You all got paid off. What does it do for our race relations? Does it, make, does it improve our race relations or does it, does it create resentment? Does it create hostility? You see, if you just impose solutions on people, then you're going to get a lot of resistance. But people work through the solutions and, and with others. And if at the end of the day, people decide, you know, part of our solution is reparations, then I'll be on board. But I can't be on board with just imposing that because I, I think that's actually going to make race relations worse five, ten years from now. We're going to tell the poor white kid in Appalachia, you know, why he didn't get $50,000, but this poor black kid did. You know, I mean, I, we, could, we could come up with, with academic explanations for that. Don't get me wrong. But that's not going to make sense to that poor white kid. He's going to be resenting these, these black kids for the rest of his life. So I think we have to think longer term than just trying to get... Uh, a short-term solution like reparations. Mm -hmm. So in terms of establishing these sort of dialogues between different races to try to solve these racial disparities we've been talking about, um, I mean, do people of color in that case, do, would they also have obligations toward uh, dominant groups? 
They would have the obligation to work with them, yes. Yes, this has to be a mutual process. It, it, it cannot be, and it's what pe some people are trying to make it, is whites showed up and listen, people of color talk. That, that will not work. That will not work. Uh, people of color have an obligation to try to understand where, where whites are coming from. They don't have to agree with them, and I'm not, I'm not requiring whites to agree with people of color, but if they understand where they're coming from, then we can find fashion solutions that we can live with. Uh, and, and so, yeah. Uh, now, when I, when I talk about a mutual obligations approach, I'm not saying that the solution is going to be equal for everyone. I suspect the solution is going to be some sort of compensation for people of color more so than what whites receive. I, I expect that. If it doesn't turn out that way, okay, I can live with that. But that's why I suspect it's going to happen. But to enter into the conversation is an obligation everyone has. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now talking a little bit about theories in sociology. So when it comes to trying to tackle these issues, people bring to the table, for example, critical race theory. But mm -hmm. is that something that allows for us to understand the social phenomena through a new lens or, or not? You know, I think almost every, every theory brings something that, uh, that gives us insight that we didn't have before. And probably every theory has its own shortcomings. And I think critical race theory, you know, because it focuses in on uh, the uh, sort of structural uh, inequities in our society uh, based on race uh, and helps us to locate where they are at, it brings that. I mean, you know, it helps us to understand that. Uh, is that sufficient to solve racial problems? No. But is that necessary for us to get to where we need to get to? Yes. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think CRT uh, has something to, to offer us. I I just would not look to CRT to, to solve the racial problems because I don't think it, it's designed to do that, even though people talk about how it can. I think it's really designed to do that. I think it's designed to be a diagnostic tool more than anything else. I think we use it in that way. Uh, I think it'd be very useful. Mm -hmm. Do you think that faith can unite people? Uh, yeah, it can also divide people. Yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. But yeah, I mean, there's plenty of research showing both both happening. Mm -hmm. So and it's interesting because uh, since in my show, I interview lots of scientists, these are topics that don't come about very frequently. But uh, would you say that Christianity, because you study that is fundamentally racist? No, not fundamentally. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing inherently racist about Christianity. Obviously, some Christians are racist. Uh, Christianity also helped to lead the abolition movement uh, here in this country. Uh, Wilberforce also was a Christian, and because of his Christianity, he fought against the slave trade. Now, once again, you know, Christ Christians also used uh, the Bible to justify slavery, to justify mistreating the people. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to paint this picture of you know, flowers and roses, but because of some of the, you know, Wilberforce and Ginky sisters and, 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 you know, you can't, you know, I don't see how you can say it fundamentally is racist. It can just be, it can be used in a racist manner, clearly.
Mm -hmm. So uh, when we think about religion, at least people on the left tend to associate religious people with conservatism. But there are also, for example, when it comes to Christianity, progressive Christians. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, Christianity spans the spectrum in the United States, at least. I don't. I can't attest to other countries. It spans the spectrum across the political. Are, you are more likely to be political conservative uh, if you're if you're highly Christian. You're more likely to, but there's also there's plenty of Christians who are highly religious who are politically progressive too. Mm -hmm. Is there anti-Christian hostility in the U.S.? Because I mean, it's easy, for example, for people to talk about uh, discrimination against atheists, but is sure. there specifically discrimination against Christians in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, I, I think that there is in certain areas, and, and, and you know, the, the way to look at look at it is. Uh, you know, when I did my research on anti-Christian attitudes, uh, I found that the people more likely to have them tend to be more educated, tend to be wealthier, white, males. Uh, so these people with power in our society. And discrimination is going to look different when you have power than when you don't have power. When you don't have power, you know, uh, if you're, when you're poor and, and you're uneducated and you don't like a group, you don't like Muslims, you're going to lash out violently against them. You're going to you're going to be physically violent against them because that that's that's what you can do. Uh, when you have education power, uh, economic power, you can engage in, a, in a discrimination that's not violent in the physical sense, but is can uh, punish others uh, occupationally or or, or 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 economically. And I think there's evidence of that. Uh, I'll just give you one case study. Mm -hmm. uh, University of Iowa uh, had a rule, made up a rule saying that, you know, your student organizations had to include people of all different religions. And uh, and so when they enforced the rule, they only enforced the rule against Christian organizations. There was a Muslim organization that clearly, uh, you know, they had in their bylaws, you know, well, Muslims, you know, in, in, in our leadership, and they didn't enforce it against them. Well, they only enforce against Christians. So the Christians sued and said, "You you have to enforce it against uh, you know you have to enforce it against everybody." Uh, and so they, they they started trying to do that, uh, but uh, they ran the foul again because they were not enforcing it against. Uh, for example, I think there was this uh, Asian uh, like an Asian accounting organization. Some you know one of those like. And and in their bylaws, they said, you know, well, you you have to uh, you have to have these certain beliefs in order to be part of, you know, you have to respect Asian culture or or maybe Korean or something like that, you know. But that's a belief, and boom, once again, they were they're in trouble again. And so, my my interpretation is they like other some other colleges are trying to enforce these certain rules against Christians. They got caught legally, but had they not been caught. Basically, they would only enforce an ideological purity test uh, on Christian groups and no one else. So to me, I think that that's, you know, and there's, there's other cases, but to me, there's, that's evidence that, uh, that, yeah, there are times where Christians are, do face discrimination in our society.
<laughs> so one last question before we go. We've already talked about transcending racial barriers. Is it mm -hmm. also possible to transcend religious barriers? And I think that's relevant to talk about today because in politics in recent years, people have been focusing yeah. a lot on issues like immigration and more specifically Muslim immigration. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I am a Christian, so I'm not ashamed of that in the slightest, but I, you know, I, you know, live in a society of people with different religious beliefs, and, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Uh, I, think the, I think the United States has a chance to do that. Uh, in fact, I think uh, to some degree, and I say this as a Christian, because Christians are no longer, have majority group power in our society, I don't think that they do, uh, it increases our, our opportunity to do that. Now, Christians are not in a position culturally to enforce their will on others, for the most part. You know, Christians don't have power in the media, they don't have power in academia, they don't have power in the, in the arts, in entertainment. Uh, the question is, will others, now that they have power, try to use their power against groups like Christians? And if they don't, I think we could truly have a religious multicultural society in the United States, kind of a, a pluralism where you know, groups do what they want, you know, and there's equality. You know, what we, what we think about as, as far as cultural pluralism could actually, could actually happen in our society. Uh, I, would, I would like to see that, you know, I would like to see that develop in our society uh, over, over time. Uh, I'm 50-50 on whether it's gonna do it. I'm, you know, I think there's a chance we can do it, but because I can also see how it could, it could turn sideways as well. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think that, that, you know, I think a society where you have different religions and people can, can decide what religions they want and, and they decide without, without coercion, you know, and, and all religions have, and, or non-religious beliefs have the right to the public square to, you know, to, to say, hey, here's, where, here's why you should believe what you believe. Why we believe, you want to come over, that's fine. You know, if not, you know, you still have all your full rights as a citizen in society, you know. Uh, you're not going to be discriminated against, you know, except in specific religious. Obviously, I don't, I don't believe you should force a Muslim school to hire Jewish teachers or anything like that, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, beyond that, uh, yeah, I think that, that would be a great society. You know, can we get there? That's, that's the big question. And would that evolve any form of multiculturalism? Well, I think it would be, it would be a natural multiculturalism. Uh, okay. And maybe maybe it would take some socialization to learn how to accept uh, people of, of different uh, beliefs, uh, of very different beliefs, uh, beliefs that you totally disagree with, but you still accept them. You know, in in the you know you don't take something to your house, you don't take something into your church or synagogue or mosque. You know, you know, I mean, you know, but you know, in in the workplace, at schools, uh, in politics, uh, you know, uh, you know. I like to think I vote for the best person regardless of their religious beliefs, but I'm voting for the person I, I, I think politically is best suited for, for the job. Uh, and I would happily vote for an atheist over a Christian if I thought the atheist was better suited for the job. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think that that is, that is a possibility and maybe we have to socialize people for it. Uh, I don't know if we're thinking deeply about it because I think a lot of people still think that this is a a Christian nation. A lot of Christian things is a Christian nation. Uh, a lot of non-Christian things is a Christian nation. Uh, the Christians are the dominant group. But uh, as I looked around, the Christians are no longer the dominant group 
the dominant group. Are they a strong group? Yes. The dominant group relative to non-Christians in our society. You know, if we look at, uh, you know, economically, they're not doing any better than anyone else. Culturally, they're not. Politically, they still have some power, but I think that's waning. Uh, so, you know, that's an opportunity to, for us to have a multicultural society if we, if we are willing to step into it. Mm-hmm. Great. So let's end on that note. Just before we go, are there any good places on the internet for people to find your work? I mean, I'm on WestlakeGeorgeNC.com, so I post my books there, and you can contact me through there, and that's how you can find me. Okay, so I'll be leaving links to that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Yancy, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Ricardo. Have a good day. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. My channel is now more than three years old, and to keep it sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, you can also find links to it in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan V. Selenian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andrew, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Please, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Niruban Balachandran. And finally, my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.